I believe God is doing some stuff in us and through us, and uh, today uh, what we're going to be doing is opening up kind of a theme, a study, if you will. We're going to be looking at the, th- at the biblical, the incredibly bib- important biblical theme of rebuilding ruins, rebuilding ruins, an incredibly important theme in the story of God's people in the Old Testament. Uh, And I'm going to give you some context for that story, but I think that this applies to many in the room, personally, and can I say, even more importantly, it applies to us as a collective whole, that God is calling Border City Church to rebuild ruins in this time. And so perhaps you are entering into new changing situations and circumstances in your life that are happening even now. And I want to say, as you enter into some changes in your life, know and put your faith and confidence in the fact that God is not calling you just to kind of meander through, but calling you to rebuild ruins. Perhaps some of you are... Uh, made a fresh commitment to Jesus in a deeper way than you ever have. And as you begin to follow Jesus, you find that there's so much in your life that has been built on worldliness, and, and you're finding that the whole thing needs to be rebuilt so that it's aligned with Jesus. And I want to encourage you this morning, this is a season of rebuilding. Perhaps some of you are coming out of a season of wandering and lostness and where, what way is up, what way is down, what is going on. And I want to tell you, this is now a season to mark definitively and to say, this is where God is leading us. This is what must be done. And we are going in to rebuild that which has been lost. I want to say perhaps... Most importantly, many of you may identify with this in the room, and I think Border City Church identifies with this, that we are being thrust by God into calling after a season of testing. Thrust by God into the calling after a season of testing. So what is rebuilding, you may ask? I would maybe say it this way. Rebuilding is returning to Jesus. Jesus is Lord, right? It's not just a Christian thing that we say. He is Lord. And rebuilding is returning to Jesus what has been broken so that it is restored under his leadership to do his will for his purpose with his favor and power and presence. That's what rebuilding looks like. Returning to Jesus what has been broken so that it is restored under his leadership, doing his will for his purpose with his favor, power, and presence. A goal for the next five weeks is we're going to be journeying together through a look at the biblical theme of rebuilding. And again, the Old Testament makes a big deal out of this thing that we're talking about. The goal over the next five weeks is we want to glean biblical principles from the scripture to teach us and equip us to rebuild in this season. I'm saying that so that you can say right now in your heart, let it be, Lord. 
Teach me from your scripture. Show me what I need to see. Equip me and train me and send me to rebuild, which brings us to the second goal, which is that we, everyone in this room, I pray, my prayer, is we would accept the call of Jesus to be a rebuilder of ruins. Yes, that means having things in your own personal life to be rebuilt. But can I just say something about spiritual maturity? Immaturity is when it's all about what we get from God. Spiritual maturity is when we begin to say, God, send me. It's me living for him, not the other way around. I would say, if you don't know what to read in the scripture over the next five weeks, can I give you some recommendations? The five books of the Old Testament that deal with the time in Israel's history where they were rebuilding ruins. In case you don't know, Israel, because of their sin, were sent into captivity in the land of Babylon. And after 70 years, they went back to their land, praise the Lord. But it was ruined, decimated by the Babylonian Empire. And they had to rebuild it. The five books are these. And I would suggest that you could perhaps be reading these together with us over the next five weeks. The first would be Ezra. Ezra the scribe who writes the history of the first group of captives that returned to the promised land. Ezra, then two prophets who prophesied during the time of Ezra, the first being the book of Haggai. If you say Haggai, I'm not going to judge you. Haggai, and then the second being the prophet Zechariah. And then fourthly would be the kind of second major wave of captives that came from Babylon back to the promised land, which was written in the book of Nehemiah. That would be the fourth book that we can be studying over these next five weeks. And then the prophet who was prophesying during the time of Nehemiah is found in the book of Malachi, which fittingly ends the Old Testament. Malachi is the last word from God in the canonized scripture that we hear until Jesus returns, shown in the Gospels. If you say, let me just warn you, that's more than a chapter a week for the next five weeks. Okay, so if you say, actually, I, I don't have capacity to do that, and I get it. I don't either, because I am too much of a Bible nerd, and I look, huh? A day. More than a chapter a day. Thank you for saying that. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. That's what the scripture says. If, you, if you're going to struggle with more than a chapter a day, then can I suggest break it down to the two historic books, Ezra and Nehemiah, and then choose one of the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, or Malachi. And you could do that, and you could do a chapter a day. Zechariah maybe, not so much, because that's 14 chapters. That's a little long. Good goal for the next five weeks today, what we want to look at is that the gospel calls us into rebuilding ruins. The gospel being the message of Jesus. Jesus himself calls us, all followers, all, every single disciple of Jesus is called to rebuild ruins. And secondly, is this idea the first step of rebuilding ruins, just like it was with the Israelites, they had to leave Babylon. And we want to look at getting out of where you've been 
by getting where you've been out of you. So the gospel calls us to rebuild ruins, getting out of where you've been, and getting where you've been out of you. The gospel calls us to rebuilding ruins. So if I could just kind of say, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord God has anointed me. Isaiah 61, verse four, uh, 1 through 4. The, uh, the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel, good news, to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to comfort all who mourn, to, uh, to uh, proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to comfort all to appoint to those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they would be, that they, and that they would, nope, that, that they would be called the planting of the Lord, that he would be glorified, and they shall rebuild ruins. So we're going to look, the gospel calls us to become this. And I want to go through the history real quick to give you context of what we're looking at today and over the next five weeks. The history of Israel is something like this. You start with Genesis. Most of us would know this. God creates the heaven and earth. He creates mankind. Mankind sins. You heard of that? Mankind sins. We call that the fall. And uh, we got problems because sin enters the world and all sorts of manner of issues uh, enter into the world. And even that is the case down to this very same day. In fact, I might even say it is the case even in our own homes today. Some of us, all, all of us, have sin still. This is the issue. This is the enemy. And uh, God wipes out for a season, the, everything in the, in the earth kind of almost hits a reset by sending a flood, and he calls Noah to build an ark. And then, and then years after that, we enter into what many Bible scholars would call the era of the patriarchs. And God calls a man named Abram out of what would later be the city of Babylon. It was then Ur of the Chaldees, and he calls this Abraham, uh, somebody who was looking at the stars for guidance, didn't even know the one true God. God calls him, and he leaves everything he knows to follow this God to a land that he will be shown, doesn't even know where it's going to be. And Abraham, in that act of faith, becomes the father of the faith. Through his loins would come the people of God, the Israelites. Abraham and his wife give birth to Isaac. The baton is passed to Isaac. Isaac and his wife give birth to Jacob. The baton is passed to Jacob. And Jacob has the 12 sons who become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Those 12 tribes enter into, and God warned them of it, into Egypt where they became slaves for 430 years. And it was during this time that the, the, the slavery became so intense, the taskmastering became so burdensome, they began to cry out to the God of their ancestor, Abraham. And that, and that God, the one true God, heard them and sent and raised up a deliverer in the name, by the name of Moses. Moses, of course, leads his people out of Egypt. Some of you know the story. They hit the Red Sea, Egyptian army chasing behind after them. There's nowhere to go, sea in front of them, army behind them. And the staff of Moses miraculously splits the sea in two, and they cross over. And the Egyptian army behind them gets swallowed up in the sea that had split. 
They are spending the next two and a half years in a wilderness, a desert. Two and a half years later, they show up at the Jordan River. And on the other side of that Jordan River is the promised land that God had given to his people. That they were going to possess the whole time. And when they got there, because they saw giants in the land, that whole generation said, you know what? I don't want to go over there. And they had doubt and unbelief, and unfortunately, they wandered for 38 more years in that wilderness, 37 and a half, until that whole first generation died. You tracking? We're getting there. That whole first generation died, and then Joshua, the second generation, the, the kind of like disciple of Moses, rises up as their next leader, and he valiantly leads them in trusting in God into that promised land, crossing the Jordan, taking on giants, driving out and dispossessing all the nations that had been in there and, and, and possessing as an inheritance for all 12 tribes, which were now a million plus strong, and they took the promised land. And what did they do? God raises up judges, and during this time, they begin to backslide. They begin to walk away from God, and then they repent and come back. Backslide again, repent and come back. Backslide again, repent and come back. And then God raises up Samuel the prophet who recognizes the first God-chosen king of the nation, the one who had a heart after God's own heart, David. And God unites the 12 tribes into one kingdom. And they live, even though David is an imperfect person, they live under the blessing of God because of his faith and love for God. How many of you know we do not need to be perfect to walk in the favor and blessing of God? But we do need to have a heart after God. There's a difference between sinning because I don't fear God and making a mistake and running back to God because I love him and he's my everything. That's David. And that's the blessing that the people of God lived under. And it became a powerful uh, nation. And uh, it was in the reign of his son Solomon that the temple was established this is incredibly important because in a sense, everything that I've said to you up to this point all points to this right here, that God would have on the earth a house, the temple of the holy city of Jerusalem where God himself would dwell, where God's law would be spoken to God's people and that even other nations of the earth would come to that temple so that they could hear what God had to say and they could experience God and they could see in the people of God, the Jews, the way that they live and know the ways of God. All of this being a type and a shadow of the church. We good? Sadly, the pattern continues. God raises up prophets, but the people of God be, continue to walk, backslide and they look at other nations and they start to worship the things that those nations worshiped and they turn their back on God and sometimes they would go back to God and sadly the kingdom had to be divided into two different kingdoms and the northern tribes became Israel that had been reprobate and walked away from God and the southern kingdom, the, the kingdom of Judah, uh, was still where Jerusalem was and where the temple was, still kind of followed God even though they backslid. And prophets were raised up to warn this people that if you keep doing this, if you keep walking away from me, I have no other choice but to raise up another power to come in and wipe this nation out. Just like my words, just like I wiped out 
the earth with a flood. I've got to wipe out, decimate this land, decimate even the holy city of Jerusalem, decimate even the temple, and send my people into captivity until they come to their senses, repent, and come back to me. And every single prophet that you read, Isaiah, Hosea, Jeremiah, on and on and on, this, this theme is the same theme over and over and over. There is judgment coming. You're going to, be, you're, you're going to lose your land. You're going to go away to captivity. But, you, but my, my purpose, God would say, is not for you to go away to captivity. My purpose is to use captivity as a last-ditch resort if that's the only thing that I can do to get you to repent and come back to me so that I can bless you. Can I say to you this morning... God's desire is not to punish you. His desire is to allow punishment if necessary so that we humble ourselves, repent, come back to him so he can bless us. That's the heart of God. And there, there is, sadly, I do not envy Jeremiah the prophet who had the sad misfortune of being the prophet in the time that this calamity finally fell upon the land of Israel. That Babylon, as an empire, rose up and began to take over the world, and eventually they came into the land of Judah, and they took it over, they wiped it out. They wiped out the city of Jerusalem, they wiped out the temple, and the people of God were taken away, led away captive into Babylon for 70 years. Are you following? And it was during that time, you've got Daniel, who is a prophet, if you read the book of Daniel, that is not in Israel. That's not in Judah. That Daniel is in Babylon, talking about his experiences following God in an enemy nation, in a foreign country that didn't serve God. But it was after all of the 70 years that we read Ezra, where God begins to work and say, now is the time I'm restoring my people. And Ezra writes these words. If you want to look, you can look at Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, now let me give you some context here. Who is Cyrus? He's the king of Persia, as you see there. You may say, Persia? I thought we were talking about the Babylonians. God had and began to even prophesy through Daniel that another empire is going to rise up and overtake the Babylonians. And when the Babylonian empire falls, God is going to cause his people to now be returned back to their land. And this is what's happening. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this is God's sovereign timing, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be filled, fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Can I just hit pause real quick and say this? That in a time of rebuilding... God in his sovereignty is able to move upon people who don't even know him. Move upon circumstances that have nothing to do in essence with him. He's able to move on your behalf. To, to make space and make way for you to go back into rebuilding ruins. God does it. Through you, yes, but God does it. So he stirred up the, the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation through, throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, 
And he has commanded me to build him a house or a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? Who is Cyrus talking about? He's calling to the Jews who were captives in, the, in, in Babylon. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord God be with him and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house or the temple of the Lord God of Israel. He is God which is in Jerusalem. I want to ask you a question real quick. If you were one of the captives and your people have been in captivity for 70 years now, that's two generations. In other words, the first generation were led, led into captivity. Many of them died, had kids, and even they had kids, and now those people are who are reading this. This is like a third generation, for, I mean, for the most part. They have been in Babylon seven years. They've bought houses. They've settled. They, they have a life in Babylon now. How would you feel hearing this proclamation from Cyrus, the emperor, that the door is being opened for you and your people to go back to their actual land? Would you feel excited? Would you feel this is amazing? I imagine there was some of that. But what about the fact that we have to go across the desert? we got to travel all this place to a place that we've never even seen. And when we get there, it's in ruins. The temple is destroyed. The farms are overgrown and left. Our houses are all burned down. And nobody's been living there. There's some mixed emotions, right? And when God calls us to rebuilding... Yeah, it's exciting, but can I say there's also some realities that we're going to have to face? And let me ask you this question, or actually, can I ask you to go with me to read Isaiah 61 again with me? Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. And now, let's read those words that Isaiah prophesied a few hundred years before this moment of what God's heart would be in this moment to restore his people to their land. Are you tracking? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. What is the good news that's being released to God's people in this time? You are out of captivity. You are going back home, baby. Who are the poor? The poor are people who have been subject to captivity now for 70 years. They've lost their home. They've lost their dignity in the earth. They've lost any sense of power. They've lost all of that. And God is saying there is the anointing being released to proclaim to my people good news. To heal the brokenhearted. It's interesting that God wants to heal the heart before any of the steps of moving back to the, to the promised land. Heal the brokenhearted, but to proclaim liberty to the captives. Are you getting it now? We always talk about this passage of scripture about being liberated from patterns of sin and all that kind of stuff. That's true, but in this context, it was literal captivity. To proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Can you imagine how they felt reading these words knowing that God had spoken about this moment hundreds of years ago, and this is what God has for us. To proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound, 
We're getting out to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. In other words, the year of the Lord's favor. This is the year of the Lord's favor, they would say. To, uh, and the day of vengeance of our God. In other words, God's taking vengeance on our enemies. Hallelujah. To comfort all who mourn. To appoint those who mourn Zion. To give them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. All this negative that we've lived, God's going to return double of his blessing upon all of it. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they might be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he might be glorified and they shall rebuild the old ruins. I want you to hear this through their, their eyes, through their ears. What they were thinking, what they were feeling. God has called us to go back and rebuild ruins. That means rebuild the temple, rebuild the city of Jerusalem, rebuild all of Judah, rebuild, they shall raise up the former desolations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Can you, can I indulge, can you indulge me? Can we read that scripture one more time? And this time I want us all to hear it as God's word to us in this season of being called to rebuild ruins. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Who's me? Jesus. Because the Lord has anointed me to, proclaim, to preach good news to Border City Church, to Minden Nichols, to Paul Kulik. Good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up, heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. In other words, the year, the time of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To appoint those who mourn, to comfort all who mourn, to appoint those, to set in place those who mourn Zion. What does that even mean to mourn Zion? That means to look at the city of God, which for us is the church, and to see God's pattern, order, design for his church, and then to look at the way it is today and to mourn and say, God is worthy of having a church on the earth that looks like him, that behaves like him, that has his power and his favor and his presence so that the world can see what God is like by looking at his people. And it mourns us that the church has become this thing that it's become, this tradition, this religion, traditions of men, this thing that even we're not inspired by and God knows most of the world isn't. Those who mourn Zion, I'm inviting you to mourn with me the state of the church, to have a zeal for the brilliance and worthiness of Jesus that he would have a people on the earth who are devoutly his, his own, that he can do whatever he wants and display his glory through us. Those who mourn Zion are appointed, set in place. What happens to people who mourn Zion? who feel about the state in the church the way Jesus feels, he gives them beauty for ashes. 
the oil of joy for mourning. A garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That they would be called the planting of the Lord that he would be glorified. And they, those who mourn Zion, shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Again, can I say, what are we even talking about when we talk about rebuilding the old ruins for you and for me? What does that look like? Again, I would say it would be this. God's people. Jesus' people. Sometimes I like to not say God because let's make it clear who is God. Jesus' people living Jesus' way, doing his will for his purpose with his favor, power, and presence. Every place in my life that is unaligned with Jesus, perhaps it's because I'm stubborn and rebellious. Perhaps it's because I don't trust him because I don't see him clearly. Perhaps it's because I love this sin and I'm not willing to let go of it. And so I'm going to hold on. I'm still going to claim Jesus somehow, but I'm not giving him access to that thing. Rebuilding ruins looks like bringing all under Jesus because he is worthy of it all so that he can do whatever he wants, which is always ultimately what we want. What we really want, not what we think we want. I want you to imagine with me right now, your life. What does it look like being in perfect channel of heaven? Imagine if there are no hindrances between Jesus and his goodwill, his voice towards you, being going from heaven to be received cleanly into your heart, that you trust him, you believe him, you respond to his leadership, and you do what he says, and he does whatever he wants. I want you to imagine that. Doesn't that sound good? Jesus taught, taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, what I just described, is normal. It is as much as Abraham left his world and went to a land that, he that God would show him. And can I tell you, Abraham never possessed that land. He spent his life looking for a city that couldn't be found. The author of Hebrews says it had foundations. He left his, 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 his world searching for something that he only found in part in this world. And the same is true for you and for me. While we yearn for a church that has been perfected, a church that looks just like Jesus. We long to be that church. In a sense, because we're always in formation, we're never going to fully see it until Jesus returns. And yet, just because that's true doesn't mean we don't yearn for it and move there with all of our heart and our faith and our being. Am I making sense? That is what rebuilding of ruins looks like, that Jesus has on the earth a people who are following him completely and through whom he can do whatever he wants. That's what you and I are called to do. 
And I want to say this morning, as a first step of this five-week journey, the first step is to get out of Babylon and get Babylon out of you. And when I say you, I'm talking to me too. I'm not talking at you. I'm talking with you. Get out of Babylon. In order to go rebuild ruins, you've got to go on a journey back to that place that God has called you to possess. And to do that, God knows you've got to leave where you are. Babylon. And to get out of Babylon, you've got to get Babylon out of you. Now, to give you some context, in Babylon, the prophet Daniel was raised up by God, and he demonstrated in Babylon something of the kingdom of God. And you see a juxtaposition during this time of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Babylon. Babylon speaks of the world's system. You and I are living in a world that has a world system. It operates on different principles from the kingdom of God. And can I say, so much of the church, we put a fish over it, we put a Jesus over it, we do all this churchy stuff, but we're still operating by the spirit of the world. We're trying to do the kingdom with Babylon's power. And if we want to do the kingdom, we're going to have to know what Babylon's about and repent of it. And how does Babylon operate? It operates by material wealth and worldly power. I want, that strikes at the core of every person in this room. We instinctively feel like we've got to have material wealth and we've got to have some kind of power. And the, and the kingdom of God operates this way. Reliance upon his power. Being broken, emptied of myself. Not trusting in any power in this world or any power of myself. I am broken and humbled and totally dependent on his power. That people, God can do anything through. That people, God can demonstrate his brilliance and glory through. Or, as a second option, if you want this instead, we could rather do the thing where we kind of play church and we uh, kind of dance and do our songs and stuff like that. And Jesus is, doesn't have his way. We're not really open to him, but we're just kind of putting a fish over it and a little cross. We have our cross symbols. That's very Christian. That's very good. And we can play our game. And the world looks at us and say, why do I want to be a part of that? And can I say, for the first 18 years of my life, I would be invited to some youth group over and over and over. And I would be like, why do I want to be a part of that? Y'all are like the dork squad. And I'm having way more fun than you are in whatever socially weirdness thing you're... You know, if I would have seen something of God operating in those people... I think I would have had a whole lot easier time putting away my drugs and my whatever else and pursuing what they've got. That's what I want to give Detroit. That's what I want to give our nation. And so let's just read real quick because I think there's so many things we could pull out from Daniel, the book of Daniel, but we'll just look at some verses from chapter 5 quickly and then we'll pray and then we'll leave. Daniel chapter 5 verse 1. It says Belshazzar, now let me give you context again, Belshazzar was the Babylonian king 
He was the second king after they became captives. Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon when, when Israelites were taken and, and brought to, the Judah people were brought to captivity, and his son Belshazzar came into power thereafter. Daniel is still serving. Belshazzar, king of Babylon, the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in the presence of the thousand, and while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels, talking about riches, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. The arrogance here. We're having our party, and you know what? I'm going to just kind of brag about how we took all the pots and the silver and the gold out of that temple out there in Jerusalem that we completely took over, and let's bring it into our own, and we'll use it as our own. It was separated to those people's God, but you know what? We are God. We're going to use that stuff. And so they bring it into the party. Good idea for them to do? Right? No. Let's see what happens. Uh, Taken from the temple which had been Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine. And they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Can I just say this? Babylon does not fear God. Now, that may seem obvious. That may seem trite and simple. Can I say that in every single one of our hearts, that there are areas where we also do not fear or honor or recognize God? And that's part of the Babylonian system that was imparted to us through our sin nature. Where we do not yield to God. Can you think of the ridiculousness of not yielding man, not yielding to God, the one who made him? And yet, how many of us can say guilty as charged? So let's not just judge these Babylonians. Let's say, you know what, God? Judge me. Get this stuff out of me. After this happens, I'm not going to make you read it, uh, but I love the story. A hand appears in the room. Can you imagine this? Like they're having their party, they're doing their thing, and a hand appears in the room and starts to write words on the wall in a language they didn't understand. And it says that Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, Belshazzar saw this, and he began to get so freaked out that his knees are buckling, he's shaking, he is freaked out. The wine is not helping him anymore. And this is what happens. Drop down in verse 7. It says, the king, I mean, yeah, the king cried aloud to, to bring in all the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And the king spoke to them, to the wise men of Babylon. Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be, cl- listen to this, shall be clothed with purple and have a, ch- purple was a very expensive clothing during that time, for, even for centuries later clothed with purple, and have a chain of gold around his neck. What is that? Riches. The, 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 the spirit of Babylon operates by riches. It is the power that it operates on. It's the way that it's able to lure people, to, to get people to grind out like a carrot dangling in front, to get, to get the people of the world, even down to this day, even sometimes ourselves, the, the lure of riches to get us to do what the spirit of Babylon wants us to do and to depart from God. Are you following? That was all the power that Belshazzar has. That's the operation of his power. 
He's got a problem. What does he have to offer? Riches. And he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Power. Riches, power. That's how the spirit of Babylon operates. We want to get that out of us. So can I ask us a question? Do we operate by the system of riches? Jesus says this, no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve mammon, which is riches, and God. For you will either love the one and hate the other, despise the one and serve the other. You cannot. Can I say it this way? You cannot serve God and Babylon system. How many of you want to rebuild ruins? Let's, let's take vengeance on that today. We do not need to rebuild ruins. All of what we have is for his purpose. A rebuilder of ruins is one who is aligned with Jesus. He is my Lord. Everything that I have, I'm merely a steward of on his behalf. It actually belongs to him. Can I tell you something? Because some of you are like quivering and like, oh my gosh, what are you even getting at? Can I tell you something? That is the best place to live. That's where you see Jesus show up. <laughs> some of you don't believe me yet. Babylon's lure is power. Can I ask us this question as a church? Do we, do we seek power in this world? Can I get it maybe a little bit more descript to, so that we know what we're talking about? Do we jockey for position or promotion. Yeah, that's in, in the kingdom of God, that is completely unnecessary. It is a waste of energy. God, God will promote you as you follow him. He will. You don't need to jockey and, and step over this person and find favor with the boss because they're the ones with power and you kind of know how the power structure works and so I covet, I curry favor with this person and I make sure that this person hates this person. Do you do that? Do you play those games? Do, let me ask you another question. Do we think that we need a title or a position to do the work of God? If you haven't read between the lines, can I tell you whether or not you do? You don't need it. You do not need, can I say to some of the church people in, in, in our land, that you don't need people to call you apostolic bishop pastor, to be special. You need to be a son of God through faith in Jesus to be special. And you have a calling on your life regardless of what you call yourself or what other people call you. You don't need it. I don't need this to be called. I'm a pastor. What does that even mean? I'm, that means I serve. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a, <laughs> anything that I have is, is, I'm a steward of, right? And, and the same is true for you. Do we think we need a title or position? You don't. Let me ask us this question. Do we flatter, manipulate, intimidate, or seduce to get what we want? All of that is worldly manipulation of power to rebuild ruins instead of all that junk that I just talked about and I could go on and on about more examples of it to rebuild ruins we rely on God as our power source God will take care of us as we trust in him 
I'm going to read a sentence to us uh, that I think kind of encapsulates everything here. To be called to rebuild ruins, we do not need money in the account. We don't need exceptional knowledge or experience or skills. We don't need human resource or connections with powerful people. All we need is to be close to Jesus, hearing his word and doing it. And every single person in this room has the ability to do that. So to get back to this dream, and we're almost done, you, we went, the, the astrologers that were called in, the Chaldeans and the wise men, none of them could interpret the writing that was on the wall. And then in verse 13, they call in Daniel. And it says in verse 13, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? And drop down to verse 16. I have heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. And now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. So he says, gives the same promise to Daniel, but Daniel, my friends, is an example of somebody who's not of this spirit of Babylon. He's of the kingdom of God. How does Daniel respond? Let's look in the next verse. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. In other words, I don't need your purple. I don't need your gold. How many of you would say that, by the way? Let's be real. Let's be real. How many of you would say, <laughs> exactly, Shandai Rodabahanda. That's, <laughs> exactly. That was a, okay. <laughs> that, was a, that was a bad church joke. Mine, not his. Daniel, Daniel actually says, let your gifts be for yourself. And listen to the next thing he says. And give your rewards, being the, made the third ruler of the kingdom. Most of us in the church, let's be real, would say God has opened up a door for me to have influence in the nation. And I'm not saying he never would, God wouldn't ever do that. But Daniel did not need or care about any of that. What did Daniel care about? Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. What did Daniel care about? Doing the work of God. Doing the work. Can we this morning exchange our pursuit or felt need of riches? And yes, we do need money. Let me make no mistake about it. We need money. But money comes at, in the kingdom from something. We don't go get the money. We, according to Jesus, seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things are added to us. We need money, yes, but we need the kingdom. And money comes. Not so that we can be rich. I don't think God has any problem with us being well taken care of, but that's not the pursuit. Can we this morning exchange that pursuit for getting the work done? Exchange that pursuit for what God cares about. Can we rise up from all of the burdens and the carries and the, the, the concerns that we carry, and believe you me, I have them too, and care about mourning Zion, what Jesus laid down his life for, to have a purified bride in the earth that looks like him 
and demonstrates the praises of God and the person of Jesus himself to the earth. Can we make that holy exchange this morning? Could we turn from all of the crud that we get into, the manipulation, the jockeying for position, the seduction, the intimidation, all that stuff, and realize, what am I even trying to gain anyway? What I need is God's will, his way, for his purpose, by his favor, his presence, and his power, not my efforts to try to get what I think I need. This is a time to lay that at an altar this morning so that God can bring in place of all that junk his stuff. And if you're with me, why don't you pray with me?